Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. This past Wednesday, a group of us uh, were in Jerusalem, standing at the empty tomb of Jesus. And I was preaching a message on the resurrection. And it was a message you would expect me to preach about the centrality of the resurrection in our Christian faith, about the evidence for the resurrection. That's what I was preaching about, but that's not what I was thinking about. Sometimes I think about different things while I'm preaching. What I was really thinking about as I looked at that empty tomb was, okay, Jesus conquered death, and I'm go- am I going to conquer death one day? Do I absolutely know for sure I'm going to be a part of that resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15, says that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. We're all in Adam, we're genetically a part of Adam, meaning we all die, not just physically, but spiritually. The only way to escape spiritual death is by being in Christ. What does that mean to be in Christ? Only those who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. And if I am in Christ, is there ever anything I can do later to be out of Christ? I've been in the ministry more than 40 years, and I would say the number one question I've been asked through these 40 years is this, can a Christian ever lose his salvation? Having obtained eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, is there anything I could do to lose that eternal life? You know, there are some people who say, well, that's not an important issue. The doctrine of the eternal security of believer, that's kind of a secondary or tertiary issue. But no, I believe it's a vital, vital truth for three reasons. First of all, what I believe about eternal security affects my eternal destiny. I one time heard a speaker use this analogy. He said, imagine all Christians are in the back of a pickup truck. And some Christians believe the tailgate is locked and secure. Other Christians believe it's unlocked and could fall open at any moment. Regardless of what you believe, the goal is not to ride recklessly and lean over the edge, it's to sit as close to the cab as possible. Now, that sounds good, but it's really not logical when you think about it. It does matter whether that tailgate is locked or secure or if it's open. I mean, after all, what happens if you hit a bump? Could you fall out? And it's the same way with your eternal security. It really does matter whether you can lose it or not. Because if you can lose your salvation, then you better find out what it is that would cause you to lose your eternal security and would land you in hell for all eternity. No, this isn't a secondary or tertiary issue. It's basic. Can a Christian lose his salvation? It affects my eternal destiny. Secondly, I think what you believe about this affects your intimacy with God. Just imagine you're married to somebody who's always threatening to leave you for any reason. 10 extra pounds gained, uh, left uh, sock on the floor, 
a word spoken in anger and he or she says, I'm out of here. What kind of intimacy could you have in a relationship with somebody who is always threatening to leave? It's the same way in our relationship with God. If you believe that at any moment your heavenly father could cast you out of his family, how honest, how intimate could you be with your heavenly father? First John 4:18 says, perfect love cast out all fear. And third, I believe this doctrine of the eternal security of the believer affects my Christian service. I've told you before about my father. He was saved during World War II and the Air Force by a chaplain who was a member of another denomination. It was a denomination that believes exactly as we do about just about everything except this issue. This denomination believes you can lose your salvation. And even though my father ended up coming to this church and heard the truth week after week, he never could shake that fear that possibly he could be lost at some point. And he would admit to you today that fear of losing salvation hindered him in his Christian service. It kept him from his potential. Now, this isn't a secondary issue. It affects our eternal destiny. It affects our intimacy with God. And it affects our service for God. Well, why is it that some people believe you can lose your salvation? In my experience, there are four reasons people believe that you can lose your salvation after you've become a Christian. First of all, and this is foundational, a failure to understand the biblical concept <clears throat> of salvation. A failure to understand the biblical concept of salvation. Most of the way we talk about salvation, listen to this, is man-centered, not God-centered. And because we emphasize our responsibility in salvation, we get the idea that salvation begins with me. We talk about accepting Jesus, trusting Jesus, believing in Jesus, inviting Jesus into our heart. By the way, that phrase is never used in the Bible. Never are we told to invite Jesus into our heart, but that's another sermon. But it's all what we're supposed to do instead of what God does. Now, please understand, we do have a responsibility in salvation. But it all starts with God. First John 4.10 says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave himself as a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sins. We don't one day just wake up and say, hey, I'm going to grab hold of God. No, it begins with God. Yes, faith is important, but faith is not the means by which we are saved. Most Christians don't understand it. They think they're saved by faith. You and I don't have enough faith to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by what? Grace you have been saved through faith. Our faith is not what earns salvation. It's the means by which we receive salvation from God. The late Charles Stanley, and it's hard for me to even say the late Charles Stanley, He's a lot better off than we are right now, but I always think about an illustration he used to demonstrate how we're saved by grace and not by faith. He had, says, imagine a building's on fire, a woman's on the eighth floor, she stepped out on the ledge, firemen below have a large safety net and they're urging her to jump. And at a point she becomes so desperate, she realizes she has no other option and so she jumps from that burning building she lands in the safety net, and her life is saved. Now, what is it that saved that woman? 
Was it her jumping? Was she saved by jumping? No, a lot of people have jumped from buildings only to splatter on the concrete below. I mean, I'm not being disrespectful, but remember 9-11 when people jumped out of the World Trade Center? There were no safety nets. It, they were desperate. Their jumping did not save them. No, this woman was not saved by her jumping. She was saved by the safety net. The firemen realized she had a problem. They developed a plan to rescue her. They brought the provision for her rescue, a net. Her jumping allowed her to access the provision that had been made for her. And it's the same way with us. We're not saved by faith. Instead, God knew of our predicament. He knew we needed saving. He developed a plan to send his son to die on the cross for us. He made the provision for our salvation to access it. All we do is exercise faith. We are saved not by faith. We are saved by grace that we receive through faith. I think it's that fact that we are more man-centered in our thinking about salvation than God-centered that causes us to doubt our salvation. I mean, after all, if salvation is something I can do, then perhaps it's something I undo. If salvation is me reaching up and grabbing hold of God, what if I lessen my grip on God? What if in some moment of doubt or desperation I let go of God? But salvation is not our reaching up and grabbing hold of God. It is God reaching down and grabbing hold of us. That is what a biblical view of salvation is. I think it's that man-centered view of salvation that causes us to doubt our salvation. Secondly, some people doubt the security of the believer in the belief that the doctrine of eternal security leads to sinful living. I haven't shared this before. If I believe I'm eternally secure, what keeps me from going out and living like the devil? Have you ever heard that before? I think it was the disgraced evangelist Jimmy Swaggart who called the eternal security of the believer that damnable doctrine. What keeps me from sinning if I know that I'm saved forever? Well, let me say first of all that the true preaching of grace can always lead to that charge that it promotes sinful living. The great British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones from Britain, once talked about that. He said, the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you're saved by grace alone, it doesn't matter what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. This is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it's really not the gospel. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones is half right. He's not completely right. He's half right. Yes, grace could lead to the charge that it promotes sinful living. But Martin Lloyd-Jones misses the important point, and that is what keeps me from sinning as much as I want to after I become a Christian? My want-tos change when I become a Christian. 
If I am truly saved, what I desire to do changes. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any person be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. We see a picture of that in baptism. You saw it a few moments ago. Why do people get baptized? It is an object lesson of the change that occurs in a person when they give their life to Christ and trust in him for salvation. In Romans 6, 4 to 7, Paul writes, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might walk in what? Newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. If you're really a Christian who's trusted in Christ, your insight is going to change. It doesn't mean you become sinless, but it means your desire for sin changes dramatically. A woman had recently become a Christian and somebody was asking her about the difference Christ had made in her life. And he asked the woman, he said, were you a sinner before you were saved? Yes, she said. Do you sin now? Yes, she said. Well, I don't understand. You said you were a sinner before and now you're a sinner and yet you claim Christ made a difference in your life. What's the difference? She said, I suppose I would explain it this way. Before I was a Christian, I ran after sin. Now that I'm a Christian, I run from sin, even though sometimes it overtakes me. That's the difference. Third, why do people doubt salvation? Sometimes it's because of troublesome passages in the Bible. There are some passages of Scripture that, taken on face value and ripped out of context, would seem to indicate that you can lose your salvation. And perhaps the passage that leads most people to that conclusion is one in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Some people have called this the most difficult passage in the Bible to understand. So turn there for a moment to Hebrews chapter 6. Remember the writer of Hebrews was writing to a group of Jewish Christians. They had left Judaism. They had embraced Christianity, but because of family pressure and other pressures, they were being tempted to give up their Christianity and go back into Judaism. Now, look what the writer of Hebrews says. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, the people the writer is talking about here are genuine Christians. These phrases, enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, those phrases are only used to describe Christians in the Bible. You can't be a partaker of the Holy Spirit if you're not a Christian. So these are genuine believers. And he says, if they have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Doesn't that seem to indicate you can lose your salvation? 
My old professor in Greek from Dallas Seminary, Dr. Zane Hodges, used to point out about this verse. Whatever this verse is saying, it's very clear that if it is saying you can lose your salvation, it's also saying you can never regain it again. It's once lost, always lost, so to speak. If you give it up, you cannot be renewed again to repentance. Is that what this verse is saying? No. The key to understanding this verse is to understand the phrase, fallen away. The Jewish audience to which the writer was addressing, they understood this term, fallen away. In Hebrews 3.17, the writer had already talked about it. It says, and with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Remember the children of Israel in the wilderness? They disobeyed God. God was so angry with them, he was going to damn them forever. And in Numbers 14, Moses interceded for the children of Israel. He said, God, you've promised to save them. If you end up damning them, you'll lose your reputation. So God said, okay, I'm not going to damn them. I'm not going to take away their salvation, but they're going to be disciplined severely. They will not enter into the promised land. And sure enough, that's what happened. Their bodies, what? Fell in the wilderness. They didn't lose their salvation, but they lost the benefits of their salvation. They failed to enter the rest that God had prepared for them. And then the writer makes this application in Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in what? Falling away from the living God. To the writer of Hebrews, falling away meant to fall away from the benefits of your salvation, not losing your salvation. Finally, some people have difficulty with this concept of eternal security because of the failure to distinguish between salvation and rewards. I mean, there's something, let's be honest, there's something inside of us that says it's not right, it's not fundamentally fair that every Christian would experience the same heaven. Those who do nothing after they're saved and live a godless life is in comparison to those who give their lives completely to Christ and serve him as faithfully as they can. It doesn't seem right that they would experience the same kind of heaven. Well, the reason it doesn't seem right is because it's not the truth. There are differences in heaven. We've talked about that many times. Listen, your good works are worthless to secure your place in heaven. But your good works after you're saved are very valuable in determining the kind of heaven you experience. We've talked about this when we've talked about rewards in heaven. Heaven will not be the same for everybody. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, For we, talking about Christians, must all appear before the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be what? Rewarded for what we have done. Our works in the body, whether they be good or bad, that Greek word bad, phallus, means worthless. We're going to be judged by our works that we've done after we were saved. The writer of Hebrews, again in Hebrews 16, points this out, for God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote, whatever good thing you do for God, if done according to the word, is laid up for you a treasure in chests and coffers to be brought out, to be rewarded by both men and angels to your eternal comfort. 
We've talked about reasons people doubt salvation. But pastor, can you give me some reasons to believe in the eternal security of the believer? Now, some of you may say, well, I've never struggled with this issue. At some point, you may struggle with that issue. But even if you don't ever question it, somebody close to you will, a child, a grandchild, a friend. What assurance can you give people that if they are truly saved, they are eternally secure? Now, remember, the eternal security of the believer only applies to believers. The only people who are always saved are those who have truly been once saved. But what are the reasons we believe in the eternal security of the believer? First of all, salvation is what God has done for us, not what we have done for God. That's the change of thinking we all have to have. Salvation is what God has done for us. You see that illustrated in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. This passage could be called the biography of every true Christian. Listen to what Paul says. He talks about our life before Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we also formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's your spiritual condition and my spiritual condition before we're saved. We are spiritually dead. You know, somebody who is dead is incapable of making any response whatsoever. They don't say, oh, I'm feeling a little chilly or, you know, I'm uncomfortable or I'm thirsty. If you're dead, you're dead. You feel nothing. We were spiritually dead. We were children of wrath. We were the objects of God's wrath. But what happened? Verse four, but God... That's where it starts, our salvation. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Never forget, salvation is what God has done for us, not what we do for God. Listen to Romans 5, verses 6 and 8. For while we were what? Helpless. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did God look down at you and me and say, boy, they're so wonderful, I need to save them. They earn it, they deserve it. No, it's while we were apart from Christ that he took the initiative in saving us. Listen to me, if salvation is something I do, then it's something I can undo. But thankfully, it's not what I do, it's what God has done for me. I love the testimony of the evangelist Wilbur Chapman who lived in the 19th century. He often used his own testimony to teach the truth of the eternal security of the believer. Listen to what he says. I was studying for the ministry and I heard that D.L. Moody was to preach in Chicago and so I went to hear him. I'll never forget the thrill that went through me when he came and sat down beside me as an inquirer. He asked me if I was a Christian. I said, well, Mr. Moody, I'm not sure whether I'm a Christian or not. He asked whether I was a church member, and I said I was, but I wasn't always sure whether I was a Christian. He very kindly took his Bible and opened to the fifth chapter of John, the 24th verse, and asked me to read. 
Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I read it, and he said, do you believe it? I said, yes. Well, are you a Christian? Well, Moody, Mr. Moody, sometimes I feel like I am, and sometimes I think I'm not. He said, read the passage again. So I read it again. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Then he said, do you believe what you read? Yes, I do. Well, are you a Christian? Well, Mr. Moody, sometimes I think I am. He cut me off. And in a rare display of anger, his eyes flashing, he said, see here. Whom are you doubting? And then I saw it for the first time. That when I was afraid I wasn't a Christian, I was doubting God's word. I read it again with my eyes overflowing with tears. Since that day, I've had many sorrows and many joys, but never have I doubted for a moment that I was a Christian because God said it. Our salvation rests not on what we do, but on what God has done. Secondly, to lose our salvation would be to reverse an act of God. To lose our salvation would be to reverse an act of God. In John chapter 3, Jesus gave us the longest discourse in the Bible on how a person becomes a Christian. It was not to a hardened atheist, it was to a religious person, a faithful Jew named Nicodemus. A Pharisee, he kept the law. If anybody could have earned salvation by good works, it was Nicodemus. Now, Jesus could have used many images to describe salvation to Nicodemus. He could have said, Nicodemus, salvation is like drowning in an ocean and grabbing hold of a life preserver. And if you just keep holding on, you'll be saved. He doesn't use that image. He could have said, Nicodemus, being saved is like running a race. If you just run long enough and fast enough and stay faithful to the end, you can be saved. Now, Hebrews uses that to describe life after you're a Christian, but Jesus didn't use that running illustration to explain how you become a Christian. Instead, what image did he use? He said, Nicodemus, to be a Christian, you have to be born again. You know, birth is an irreversible act. There has never been a person who was born that was unborn. <laughs> Once you're born, you're born. On November 29th, 1955, I was born as the son of Robert James Jeffress Sr. Now, I'm sure through the years I did things to disappoint my dad, but there's never anything I could do to be unborn. I will forever be known as his son. And, and Jesus said that's what being born again is all about. There's a moment in time that you were born physically. There's a moment in time you are born spiritually. In that passage, John 3, Jesus talking to a Jew used a story Nicodemus was familiar with. It was a story of the children of Israel in the wilderness who were being disobedient to God. And remember, God sent the fiery serpents to bite them and they were dying by the hundreds. And Moses went to God and said, God, do something to save these people. And Moses, God said to Moses, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. You make a bronze serpent, a serpent, an image of a serpent in bronze. Put it on the end of the pole and hold it up. 
and tell the people if they will simply look once at that bronze serpent, they will be healed. Look and live was the message of Numbers 21. They didn't have to keep on looking. They didn't have to spend the rest of their life looking. A one-time look and they would be healed. Jesus told that story to Nicodemus and then he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then that famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever one time looks and believes and trusts in him shall have eternal life. That's how Jesus explained how we become a Christian. Isn't that great? That's worth clapping for. It's not our continued looking. It is a one-time look that we are saved forever. Romans 11 and 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They can never be taken away. To lose our salvation would be to reverse an act of God. Thirdly, Christ's death resulted in eternal salvation. This is such a simple concept. Remember under the Old Testament, the high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies year after year after year and offer the blood of goats and bulls and so forth. He had to do it yearly. But Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest. And he went in once, not with the blood of an animal, but he went into the presence of God with his own blood. And he secured eternal salvation for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, And having been made perfect, Christ became to all those who obey him the source of what kind of salvation? Eternal salvation. Now, this is simple, but it's so profound. If you can lose your salvation, then it's not eternal, is it? John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Fourth, how do I know I'm eternally secure? Christ's death for our sins is final and complete. It's final and complete. Let me ask you a question. How many of you recall what your electric bill was in August of 1993? Do you remember it? Now, you know it was high if it's here in Dallas and it's August of 1993. But do you remember the amount you paid to the electric company, how much they billed you? And if you don't remember, aren't you afraid the electric company is going to come and ask for that money again? No. You don't remember it because you paid it off. You paid it. It's done. And if they should ever challenge you on it, all you'd have to do is go to the bank and ask for a copy of a canceled check, and you could prove for them you paid what you owed the electric company. Now, it's the same with the debt that we owe God. The payment was final and complete. Listen to Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of what of our transgressions? All of our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which were hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In Paul's day, if you were imprisoned, above your jail cell, there would be what was called the certificate of debt. It was a listing of the offenses that landed you in jail. We all have a spiritual certificate of debt, a list of all of the things that we have done to offend a holy God. 
And we have a choice. We can spend our time in spiritual imprisonment, trying to pay off our debt. We can spend eternity in hell trying to pay off our debt, and we will never be able to pay it off. But when you trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, God takes your certificate of debt and does what? He nails it to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross where Jesus said, it is finished, tetelestai, paid in full. That is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And we never have to worry that God is going to dredge it up at some future point. It's been canceled. It's been paid in full. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19 says, God cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And that old saint, Corey ten Boom, added, and he places a sign there that says, no fishing allowed. You never have to worry that God's going to dredge up your past. It has been forgiven, forgotten forever. Finally, how do I know that I'm eternally secure? God has the power to keep us secure. Listen to me. God alone has the power to save you, and God alone has the power to keep you saved. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. God's the one who keeps you from stumbling. Hear this. If after trusting in Jesus as your Savior, if having put your faith in him to save you from your sins, if having done everything the Bible says you need to do to be saved, if after all of that you find yourself in hell, you would have lost your eternal soul, but God will have lost his good name and reputation and his ability to keep his promise. Do you think God's going to allow that to happen? <laughs> Not on your life. His reputation is at stake. Some of the best words about our eternal security are the ones we read a few moments ago from John 10, 28 to 29. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No man shall snatch out of my hands those whom the Father has given me. One popular Bible teacher recounts the story of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, the world's largest suspension bridge when it was finished in 1937. It had cost us $77 million. It was quite a feat to accomplish that engineering phenomenon. During the first phase of the construction of the San Francisco Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge, 23 men lost their life, workers who fell into the icy waters of the San Francisco Bay. They stopped the construction of the bridge and decided something had to be done differently. So the engineers came up with the world's largest safety net. It was manufactured out of manila cordage. It cost $100,000, which was a lot of money back then. But they found two things once they resumed construction of the bridge. First of all, 10 men's lives were saved. They fell into the net instead of into the icy waters below. But they also found, interestingly, that once that safety net was in place. The work on the bridge went 25% more quickly than on the first phase of the bridge. Why? Easy. The fear of falling had been removed. 
Ladies and gentlemen, God has placed his hands underneath each one of us as his safety net. All fear of falling has been removed. And the result of that is not that we go out and live recklessly or disobediently, but we work consistently and confidently for Jesus Christ, knowing that we are saved forever. Let's bow together in prayer. I'm asking nobody to move or leave for any reason. Let me say this again. The eternal security of the believer only applies to believers. The only people who can claim once saved, always saved, are those who have truly been once saved. There are some of you who are here in our worship center, some of you watching this broadcast or listening to it, who are not sure right now when you die whether you would be welcomed into heaven or not. Why not make sure today? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, the Bible promises. And today, if you would like to know for sure that you are eternally secure in Christ, I want to invite you wherever you are to pray this prayer in your heart, knowing that God is listening to you. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know that I have failed you in many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me forever. Thank you for forgiving me, God, and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.